Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and what's the third thing he said he was? Life. The what? Life. It's nice to see life coming back to the house of God. Can you, can you witness to that? Today, I, I want to actually address something today that I have, uh, I'm going to talk to you both as a brother and as a pastor that I, that I have wrestled with, and as a leader and as a believer, and that is this, it's a simple question, is what does a relationship with God look like? I know that sounds like uh, someone who's been walking with Jesus now for 46 years and probably been in the ministry 39 to 40 years and out of that walk, and I should probably have that down. But I, but I, I have things that take place in my own encounters with other believers that kind of sometimes sound like this, and maybe you can identify with this. Have you ever had someone tell you that uh, I'm really drawing closer to God? Any people ever heard that statement? I'm really drawing. And I, I'm trying to think, how do you know that? Well, I'm just drawing closer to God. I, I, I feel it, my own assessment. Or maybe I, someone say, God spoke to me on this issue. So my thinking is, but on what basis do you know that God spoke to you on this particular issue? I know I'm doing a class starting Wednesday night here on how God speaks. And I know everyone thinks that I'm going to train them to speak prophetically, but it's going to go way beyond prophecy because my, one of my concerns is God speaks to us in numerous ways. And if we don't know all those ways, we're not going to be really open to hear from God. And, uh, you know, how do you know God spoke to you? Was it an impression? Was it a Bible verse out of context by shoehorning a, a wish you're imagining? Is that how you said you heard from God? And so we can call it, I'm getting closer to God. We can call it, I'm being spiritual. But my question sometimes, is it? Now, let me give you a disclaimer here. I believe you can draw closer to God. So please don't take what I said to be that which puts that down. I also believe God speaks to you. And I also believe one of the great privileges we have as believers is that we can hear him. My concern is how we're measuring it. That is my concern. And, our, and my second concern is, are we including it in our life and applying what we feel God has said to us in our life and uh, bring it in a sense of a lifestyle? And, uh, and sometimes, are we, are we being obedient to what, or disobedient to what God has said to us? So my title of my, my, my sermon is, Be With God, Taking That Value That We've Been Focusing On. And asking the question, what does a relationship with God look like? Now, Jesus said this. He said, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. There's really four truths here. First is that Jesus defines eternal life here for us. The second thing is this. It's not, it's not, until the next, it's not just until the next life that, he, that eternal life is throughout this life and into the next life. It's something we start now here on earth. It's not when I get to heaven. It's now. It's now. We can. Third thing is that we can know God. The Greek word here, I'm not going to mess it up because I'm not really expertise in the Greek. I like it when people practice their Greek and they sound very intelligent for the five Greek words they know. But the idea in the Greek here is, a, is an experiential relationship with who you know, not just having, obtaining information. It has to do with a deep, intimate 
relationship. And of course, this takes place by receiving Jesus Christ because that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Now, when we're talking about terms we use to describe what this looks like, here are some of the terms we use. Having devotions. Having devotions. Now, I want to just say that the terms I'm going to give you, you're not going to really find in the Bible. There's no scripture about, quote, unquote, having devotions. Or, I like this one, having my quiet time. What if you had a noisy time with God? Or, we use following a Bible reading plan. I was, Bob, is there something wrong? Nothing wrong with that. I'm just talking about terms that we use. Or, spending time with God. And... Uh, and last, journaling. Now, I, I, I do all these things, but sometimes it, it can look something like this. I, I have my little uh, devotion place. I have to have, to get anything from God, I have to have a cup of coffee. <laughs> you have to have a cup of coffee, and I got my Bible open. And, of course, I'm not going to get anything out of it unless I get my journal open. Got to have my journal open, ready to go here. And, uh, you know, today, I, I, I thank you, Lord, that I'm finally with you. And uh, I love you so much that I'm going to give you this 10 minutes this morning. Because you're the Lord of my life and my schedule. And I'm reading today Proverbs. I'm going to read today Proverbs 18, 16. I think that's the verse of the day, Lord. Thank you. Be my teacher. Mm, what does it say? Oh, a person's gift makes room for him and leads him before important people. Oh, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Lord, I've always wanted to be famous. <laughs> and I pray you take all these gifts in me and you make them so great that I would, like, you know, stand before presidents and be on TV and have a great platform because you want to make me famous with the gifts that you've given me. Got to make sure I write this down because it's very important. I don't want to lose this thought. <laughs> now, one of the problems with what I just interpreted is that most likely that verse means bribing a leader. That if I bribe a leader, it will give me the opportunity to have an open door and move forward. In other words, promotion comes with money. That's the idea of that particular verse. And so I all stirred up with my heart to be famous and uh, joined with my carnality is my own interpretation of what that word could mean. So this goes, now please, I actually drink coffee and I do journal and I do have places where I sit and I study the Bible. My, my point today is not to say that that is wrong. My point today is say that I don't think that that is complete in itself, and we need to have some additional things in our life if we're truly going to develop a relationship with God. So let's look at this. We, we looked at these particular terms, but uh, we need to understand that these terms are not used in the Bible. There was no journaling going on, because that would be a very difficult task in the first century. Quiet time, well, if we were a good, he, good Jewish family, just gave our lives to Jesus, and we had seven kids in a two-room house, kind of hard to get quiet. Susanna Wesley, who some say she had 13 kids, some say she had 17 kids, used to take her apron and throw it over her face 
And that meant mom was in her prayer closet. No one could talk to her. What is this? These terms are implied in the Bible when they're not necessarily, they're not necessarily used per se that way. But let's just look at some things that the Bible does say. Joshua 1.7, only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left that you may have good success wherever you go. Now, the key to having good success wherever you go is doing according to all the law. Everyone say, all the law. Now, to do all the law, I got to read all the law. I have to study all the law, and I have to do all the law, not just Proverbs 18, 16 in my devotional today. That wouldn't be doing what Joshua was doing. Going on to say, in Isaiah 50, verse 4, the prophet said this, The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain him, sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning, he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. In other words, he awakens my ear morning by morning or daily. He teaches me Daily, some believe that this actually refers to Jesus. It's a it's a it's a it's a messianic prophecy about that. Not just the prophet himself, but he awakens to instruct me daily. Going on, it applies Ezekiel chapter three, verse one through three. He said, "Son, said to me, Son of man, eat whatever you find here. Eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel." Now, to eat the scroll, it's figurative here, means to digest my word. Digest it. Get it into you. Let it be in the fiber of your soul. Let it be like fire in your bones. Let it consume your mind and your meditation. Digest my word. Or we can, we can look at my favorite psalm, Psalm 1, 1 through 2. Bless the man who walks not in the counsel of the, of, of, of the, ungod, of the wicked or the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But what does he do? His delight is in the law of the Lord. So he delights in it, and he just doesn't read it. And on his law, he meditates, he reflects day and night. He just doesn't read it, he reflects on it. My first probably three, four years as a believer, I had a habit. I was a public school teacher. Had in those days, how many old-timers remember the old Thompson Chain Reference Bible, the big black ones that choke a mule? And uh, I'd take it to school. I'd take it to staff meetings. I mean, I was pretty intense about my faith. And I would read one chapter in the morning. And even as a school teacher, I would reflect upon that chapter all the way to lunch. I'd read a chapter at lunch. I always ate by myself. I'd then I would reflect on that chapter all the way to dinner. And then I'd read a chapter at dinner, and I'd reflect on it the rest of the night. That tied to the Psalter that we used to sing, where we actually used to sing Bible verses as part of our worship. I consumed tons of Bible verses that I can quote verbatim today. And so it was something about meditating that actually transformed my life and reflecting upon that. Going on, Jesus says this, but when you pray, so he's assuming we're going to be praying all the time when he was resurrected. Go into your room, shut the door. Come on. He didn't say bring coffee with you. 
and pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. So you got to find a secret place, yes, where to relate God. As Bob Sorge says, the key to the secret place is the secret place. In other words, everyone's got a secret place. May not be in a room. It may not be with a cup of coffee. It may be in your car. It may be in a closet. It may be in the attic. It may be on a walk. It may be at the beach. I mean, you have to find your secret place. And when you get there, you know you're relating to God in that realm. It's just something you know that's you. You know, Jesus said, also, he said, pray then like this. He said, I'm going to teach you the way to pray. So it's assumed we've got to pray. We've got to know the scripture. We've got to read all the scripture. We've got to meditate on that scripture. We've got to digest that scripture. Man, a lot more than 10 minutes with Jesus every morning. Now, if that's all you got, he'll take it. Okay? And if that doesn't fit you here in the end, your lifestyle, you got to find that place where you can do these things that the Bible tells us to do, that fits who you are and the way God made you and your schedule and everything else. And you know, Jesus said to the Pharisees, he actually rebuked them. He said to them on a number of occasions, I just gave you one reference here, have you not read? He rebukes the Pharisees for not knowing the Bible. Have you not read? Have you not read that over and over again? Heard that in the synagogue? Studied that? You know this. You know this. Peter tells us, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. We're to crave to know God. Like children crave for food and their mother's milk. We're to crave for it. It's not just a, a discipline. It's a craving of our heart. And, of course, you know, uh, Peter goes on to say, at the end of all things at hand, therefore be self-controlled, sober-minded. In other words, be alert for the sake of your prayers. We need to be alert and we need to pray. And then, and then God told Timothy this, 1 Timothy 4, 13 to 15. He says, until I come, devote yourself to the public, listen to this, to the public reading of Scripture. And I want you to shove that back in the, your mind because I'm going to bring it out here in a few seconds. To exhortation, to teaching, do not neglect the, the, neglect the gift you have. We heard that today in the prophetic, which was given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. So that what it promotes is both the public reading of Scripture and the private reading of Scripture. Paul goes on to say, we rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation. And he just didn't say, just have a few moments of prayer a day, but he said, be constant in prayer. And you can be constant in prayer and be busy. You can stop and pray. You know, when people say to me, will you remember cousin Vinny? You know, my, my, my cousin was in the hospital in New York. Because Vinny, you're going to be from New York City, you know. But, uh, you know, I don't say, yeah, I will, because I won't. I mean, people have said, yes, I'll pray for Vinny, and you never prayed for Vinny. Okay, Dale and me and Laura, we're three of us. But, uh, but what I do is say, let's pray right now. I can't agree with you right now about Vinny, what's going on. Let's pray. And I've had great things happen because of that. We're to be constant in prayer. We're to be people of prayer all the time. Now, my first question in, in kind of moving forward in this journey is I've asked myself is what does it mean to be spiritual? That's a great question. You know, it says in, for instance, Galatians 6, you who are spiritual, Okay, so there's some type of a qualification of spiritual. 
You restore such a one with the spirit of meekness, lest you also be tempted. So you who are spiritual. So what does it mean to be spiritual? So I came up with my study and thinking and reflection. I came up with my own definition. So here it is. But spiritual is this, being born of God's spirit. I can't be spirit. I can't be spiritual. Okay? This is not new ageism. This is not Buddhism. This is not just this secular thing of just mindfulness and, you know, I just really need to be spiritual and go to the beach and come in contact with myself and nature. No, spiritual has to start with the spirit. It's being born of God's spirit within where I become aware of and bent toward God. I become aware of God. I remember when I got saved. I was thinking about God all the time when I was driving, teaching, talking. It was God in my thoughts. It was God for breakfast. It was God for lunch. There was a bent in me towards God. I know you're the same as I am. And you have a bent towards God with a hunger and a pursuit to know him through his word and living a life of being influenced and progressively transformed by his spirit until I die or until Jesus Christ returns. There's my definition of you who are spiritual. Do I have a bent? Is that hunger in me? Am I pursuing God like the above scriptures instruct me to? Am I being influenced by the Holy Spirit? Am I being transformed? Well, how do you know if you're being transformed? I'm going to tell you one litmus test that will help you. Others will witness it. So if you ask me, Bob, is God Jesus really changing you? I think I'm not the best uh, person to ask. I think it would be probably to ask Sue. Does Sue think that I'm being transformed? And if she doesn't think I'm being transformed, no, you're the same grumpy man I married 42 years ago. <laughs> then that's not cool. I don't know if I'm being changed. People come back from retreats, oh, I'm just changed. Well, let's see those around you, if they think you're being changed. My, my, second, my, my, my second question is this. How did this look in the early church? How did this spirituality look in the early church? How did this relationship with God look in the early church? And why the early church? I'm going to give you my opinion. Because I believe that they were the most spiritual and powerful generation of believers in church history. I believe God's going to restore his church to great glory. And the Bible says the glory of the latter house shall be greater than the former house. And so I believe in a great reformed and revived church before Jesus comes. Okay, but they set the foundation for us that we stand on their shoulders and we build our faith upon them. How did they practice with what Pastor Pete has given us to be with God. How did they do that? Now, there's a few things you need to understand about what life was like. Number one, there was no printed Bibles and many believers could not read. So if you look, especially if you came from the slave class, that would be true. True that the average non-slave Roman citizen actually had some functional literacy. If I was going into a city, one of the things that began to happen, there would be on the side of the road these signs engravings and rocks and readings. Maybe it was about Caesar or, or maybe the general that conquered the area. Everything was just praising Rome and all their victory and all their greatness and the campaigns. And then, and then you kind of get going further. You actually, like we would see on a tombstone, you see epitaphs of famous city people and what they achieved. It would be their biographies that you would read. And you keep going into the city, then there would be the advertisements for the games and the marketplace and stuff like that, just like you'd see advertising today. 
So there was some functional level by which they could read the inscriptions on rocks and things. But, you know, it's to read and to write and to really to process even some of the things we process in books today, uh, a lot of people wouldn't be able to do that, maybe 25 to 30 percent. But there was a functional type of literacy, but no Bibles. The other thing is that the Bible... The Bibles were rare, and we'll talk about this right now. They were rare, and they were extremely, extremely expensive. So that's my second point here that we're dealing. They still were spiritual. They still were obedient to the word of the Lord and the gospel. But how? The Bible was written by hand during this time, and with ink on animal hides or papyrus. So let's look at, let's look at 2 Timothy 4.13. Paul writes his disciple... And he says, when you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas and my scrolls, especially the parchment, the parchments. What, what was a scroll? Well, a scroll was made of a plant, an aquatic plant that really grew abundantly along the Nile River that was called papyrus. And uh, it would be, it went, what they do, they take this plant and then would flatten it out. And this plant had an adhesive element to it. So I could take a sheet and I could adhesively connect it to another sheet, to another sheet, to another sheet, to another sheet. And then by ink, I would write on that. That's what, that's what, a, that's what a scroll was. A parchment, a little bit more heavy, was made by animal hides. They would basically skin a goat, skin a sheep, stretch it out, and they would use that as their paper. To, to basically um, to, uh, write the Bible... If you were going to take the excuse me the whole New Testament on on an animal skin that would that you could write on and make up the whole New Testament from Matthew to Revelation, it would take the life of fifty to sixty sheep or goats. That that would give you the New Testament. That's expensive. Go buy a goat, then go buy fifty, and that's just how much it would cost to material wise, not even paying the person who did the transcribing and writing it down. So Bibles were, were, were rare, and they were really expensive. A denarii would be basically the wage of a, of a common laborer for 12 hours' work in these times. The Gospel of Matthew would cost 2,600, 2,600 denarii. Now, you can do your math. It would require five to six years of a common laborer's wages to buy just the Gospel of Matthew. You see, a lot of Christians feel that what happened, I don't mean to be disrespectful to the book, but they feel that God just kind of dropped this book out of it. What is this? A Bible. It says right here in my broken pages, the NET Bible, the compact edition. Wow, thanks, Lord, just dropped it right from heaven. That's not how the Bible came. So this is what the Bible was in the first century church that, by the way, turned the world upside down. Turned the world upside down. If I wanted the Gospel of John, it would cost me 2,300 denarii. That would be the cost of that. And of course, we know in the, on the, in, in the Jewish tradition, okay, in the synagogues, they studied, they had copies of these parchments and these scrolls of the Old Testament, and you could go even during the week. It was a community center, the synagogue. And you could study if you could read. And there were readings and, the, and not just the rabbis read and made commentaries. Common people did that. And on the Sabbath day in, in, uh, in the synagogue, a main teacher would come and he would read a section from the Torah or the law. 
but he would also find a section of the prophets that coincided thematically with what was read in the law. So in Luke 4, when Jesus is at Nazareth and he reads Isaiah 61, he had already read a section from the Torah. Okay, so that's what they would listen to in that particular instruction. And Jesus said, these words are fulfilled before your eyes today. Okay, and got everyone a little bit riled up. The other thing that they learned is they learned through oral instruction. It's interesting, the Bible says in Acts 2.42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, how did that take place? They started taking a, a parchment. And by, by the way, you know how long these, these, these papyruses were? They, uh, you take the book of Acts or the gospel of Luke, and they said they would roll out about 31 to 32 feet. Can you imagine if that's how we had a Bible today and we had books like that, and I call Pete. Pete, have you seen the Gospel of Luke? I've been looking for it. He said, well, Bob, I was reading. I've been studying it to preach next Sunday, and right now it's rolled out from my kitchen into my front yard. And it's going to rain here in a few minutes. i got to finish reading that part to roll it back up, and I'll get it to you. How did they, how did they grow? Oral instruction was a big one. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They taught them. They spoke to them. They preached oral instruction, most likely hearing the very things that we see now included in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They, they basically heard those things over and over and over again. They began to, they began to write them down. They, be, they called them the memoirs of the apostles. That's one of the phrases that they used. It's interesting. Paul, on the first day, on the week he came together to break bread, Paul spoke to the people. He's on his way, by the way, to Jerusalem. He's going to get, I mean, this is probably his last visit with these people in Troas. He spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, he kept on talking until midnight. Now, we know a kid got so sleepy, he fell out of the windowsill and was dead. Paul had to raise him from the dead to finish his sermon. But he had to get it all in. He had to give oral instruction all in. Now, the fourth thing that's very interesting is this, is that they practice public reading, which would be very common in the, Roman, in the Roman culture. New research shows that the Roman society was really a bookish society. Now, maybe everybody didn't read, but they would have places where everyone would come together and they would have poetry reading or history reading. So in the time of the early church, reading something publicly where everyone together, it's a big point of mine, everyone together read it together and learned together and listened together. And there was a togetherness was a part of not just church culture, but Roman culture. Of course, we see this with Paul's letter to the Colossians. After this letter has been read to you, see that it also, it is also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And then you in turn read the letter from Laodicea. Wait a minute, Bob. There was a letter to Laodicea that is not in our New Testament? Yeah. May surprise you. Many believe that there was a third letter to the Corinthians that was between 1 Corinthians 1 and 1 Corinthians 2. Yeah, 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 because there have been other letters. Have you heard this? Remember the words of the Lord Jesus? It's more blessed to give than to receive. Where did you ever hear that in the four Gospels? Well, it's not. You're not going to find it. Obviously, there were other words that Jesus never got in the recording. It doesn't mean that what we have is not God's good revelation of what he wants us to know. It's just that we understand that 
This is what was taking place. There was oral teaching. There was public readings, and this is how they, they learned. The other thing, and I want to, at this point, I want to show a tape. I'm running, running a little bit out of time, but that's okay. I want to show just a quick tape of China and what's taking place in modern China today in the underground church. And this is the ministry of Dennis Balcom, who we've had preach here. They say that Dennis is responsible for about 100 million Chinese Christians. He's been in revival in China for over 40 years. And let's watch this tape of what they do in China with no Bibles. I think we could use a, a good dose of hunger for God. I, uh, I want to tie now this, this thought of growing close to God in a relationship with him and being with God at that value to really what is taking place today as, um, as Community Sunday at City Harvest Church. You notice all those Chinese who stood in the backyard for 12 hours for three straight days, that they stood together. You notice they learned together. You notice that they discovered things together. Just being with God is not just being in whatever great place you have chosen and being with him with your word, which is absolutely having a devotional time with God. But today, you're with God. Here, together, you're with God. He is, he said, where two or three are gathered in my name as promised presence, you are with God. He comes among us in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Paul said, we've all prophesied, an unlearned person is there. His heart is opened up. He falls on his face. He says, God is among you. God is with you. You're with God there. It's not just this individual thing. The problem is this, is that when I just kind of look at my spirituality as just me being alone with God, my couple favorite books, and I'm me and Jesus, and I'm just studying this thing, I am, I can, it leads me to all sorts of things. One is spiritual existentialism. That means, it means truth is what I'm experiencing, whatever subjective thing I'm going through. It can lead to that. Who's to check me? Me? I'm too busy having my experience. Or it can lead to spiritual narcissism. I'm, I'm looking at the Bible as a self-help book. Help me discover my inner self. And man, Jesus came to me today and he really wants to kind of heal that wound with that neighbor that just revs up their car really loud. And, and he knows how it just so affects me and he's, he's going to help me with that. And it kind of gets into just me and my, my pettiness and my little things sometimes. And I'm not here to downplay you getting whole and getting, and getting healed, but sometimes compared to that, we can be a little petty. It can lead to self-deception. You say, we, we overuse that verse that I've received an anointing whereby no man needs to teach me. Now, remember, they all heard together in the early church. They didn't have personal Bibles to uh, study on their own. They studied together. So that anointing John's talking about is the anointing they received in the church and in gatherings with the church. That's the anointing. And you can't take that verse and throw away Ephesians chapter 4 that I read at the beginning, at the end of our worship service. He gave gifts unto men. One of them are teachers and apostles and prophets who actually train you and give you keys to understand this particular book and open it up. Now, thank God today we got Bibles all over the place. And as church history grew, 
More Bibles were produced. Constantine had mass Bibles copied in 320 A.D. And so we have those things did evolve. And then, of course, the great Gutenberg Press, you know, was established and was in printed form like we know it today. And it's all around the world. People smuggle Bibles in. Thank God for that. My point is that spirituality is not just by myself. But spirituality is also with you. I want us to encourage to do things like study the Bible together. Yesterday at our community group, I decided, because I was so burning in this, we are going to read John 11, just the whole, the whole account of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And so we did a, everyone read a verse around. We had to go three times around to get all the verses. And what does it say? What are the nuggets you're getting out of it? Let's study the Bible together. Great wisdom came in, and we study together. No one ran off, I got a revelation, and I'm a lone ranger, I'm God's special person. We were all together as brothers and sisters learning what Jesus said to us in community. The church gathering with teachers, apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, evangelists, here to do what? To equip the church with what? The word of God. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. We got Bible studies where people are really discussing things and learning things. And there's all sorts of tools. The other thing was just me and Jesus by myself. Have you noticed that just studying the Bible can be very, very overwhelming? There are all sorts of customs, phrases, sentences, words, history backgrounds, contexts, that even language that would not be familiar in our day, would be a phrase in their day that, you need helps. You need teachers and people that can help you and mentor you to help you understand that. Because at the end of the day, if we're going to be successful, it's because we understand all the law and we do it. And unless we understand it, we can't do it. And my point is we can't do it by ourselves. We need to do it together. Amen.